welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to discuss multi-center adaptive platform trials for critically ill adults with COVID-19. My name is Derek Angus, and I work at uh, UPMC Health System at the University of Pittsburgh. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, uh, Dr. Angus. Today we'll be discussing multi-center adaptive platform trials and uh, their role in uh, therapeutics with COVID-19. So maybe for the benefit of our audience, you could explain to us what is a multi-center adaptive platform trial and how do they differ from our standard randomized control trials? Adaptive platform trials are essentially a new breed of trial that blends two advances in clinical trial development. The first advance is the use of master protocols, um, protocols that try to have, for example, a common set of inclusion criteria and a common data collection format and a common primary outcome, but nonetheless get reused over and over again for different study questions. So you might test one beta blocker against another using a protocol, and then you quickly spool to add a third beta blocker or to add another question relevant to the same disease process, but all using the same protocol. Um, And the idea being that you avoid uh, the inherent inefficiencies of framing every single randomized trial as a freestanding exercise. The traditional randomized trial is It's like building a football stadium to play a single game of football. And then when you want to play another game of football, you build another stadium. Master protocols are around the idea of looking at the infrastructure for a clinical trial, including the clinical trial design elements, and working out all the bits that we can hold steady from question to question. Let's actually write them all out as a master protocol. That's issue number one. At the same time, there's also been the growth of so-called adaptive trials, trials that begin to go beyond just having a couple of interim looks and a stopping rule for futility or for superiority and rather try to think about far more flexibility than we've been used to in the past. Those are typically enabled by flipping from what's known as a typical frequentist design, a type of biostat known as frequentist, to Bayesian statistics, where there's far more flexibility around sample size, around rules for when arms are started or dropped, and even around how you do randomization during the trial. Adaptive platform trials are basically a new class of trials that are trying to um, marry the advantages of a master protocol with the advantages of Bayesian adaptive rules. Not necessarily always Bayesian, but adaptive rules. And the two together is an adaptive platform trial. So adaptive platform trials came to the fore, especially with the COVID-19, uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic. And maybe you could uh, speak to our audience about how that happened. Uh, we had a massive pandemic, and it seems as though adaptive platform trials have been able to answer a lot of questions very quickly for us uh, in less than a year, uh, where maybe in the past that would not have been possible. Right. So, as you 
I totally agree. Uh, this has been like a coming out party for adaptive platform trials. So the idea of adaptive platform trials has been around in theory for a while. And at least in the oncology space, a poster child example is the iSpy2 program in breast cancer. Um, but that was still really focusing on accelerating phase two discovery, uh, working out across a number of different therapies that might be tried in breast cancer, which ones look most pro promising based on pathological clinical response to then spool efficiently into a phase three trial. They were still pretty small. Um, they weren't that adopted by lots of trials groups or regulatory authorities. So they were being proposed in theory, but there were a few practical examples. One of the designs that was percolating around was a design that uh, I was involved in, something called REMAP-CAP, or um, a Randomized Embedded Multifactorial Adaptive Platform, that's the acronym REMAP, for community-acquired pneumonia. And it was a design inspired a bit by iSpy2, but then trying to think about how you would transition beyond simply doing phase two evaluations in cancer to thinking about other issues for a pandemic, which is how can you learn really quickly? Therefore, how can you try to take advantage of every possible patient that presents with the disease and then quickly spool through different therapies within those patients to learn as quickly as possible. And so that involves taking a design like the iSpy2 design and then adding a couple of different features. First is really simple inclusion-exclusion criteria um, so that you try to make sure every possible patient could be enrolled. For example, all patients with COVID who are going to the ICU or all patients with COVID who are coming into the hospital. And the second feature is imagining it almost like a factorial design where you're not only asking what's the right antiviral, but you simultaneously can ask uh, what's the role of monoclonal antibodies or convalescent plasma, and what's the role of immune checkpoint or immune therapy, immune-altering therapies. And these different questions can all be separate domains that could all be getting asked simultaneously in the same That uh, design had been worked through before the pandemic with REMAP-CAP, and it was actually envisioned to run in inter-pandemic mode on regular community-acquired pneumonia and then pivot in a time of pandemic. And so one of the big trials that really received prominence during COVID was this remap cap design, because in a way it was designed and sitting, waiting um, uh, for something to happen. Another big design that uh, is a bit like an adaptive platform trial is the recovery trial, and it has similar inspiration. It comes out of a group of trialists in the University of Oxford who are used to doing large-scale cardiology trials. Uh, they didn't do Bayesian design, but they still had the same philosophy of trying to embed their trial with very simple inclusion and exclusion criteria, going harking back to those large cardiology trials of the late 80s, early 90s, but then adding in the idea of spooling through multiple questions sequentially. And so... Two classic examples of adaptive platform trials, uh, REMAP-CAP and recovery, have both come to the fore. 
they have slightly different inspirations, but one area where they totally share a similarity is this notion of simple inclusion exclusion criteria and trying to embed the trial design in bedside care, making it as easy as for every patient to be enrolled. Maybe we could chat about the drawbacks and limitations. Um, as you mentioned, these adaptive platform trials are getting their day, but it's a new form of trial that a lot of clinicians may not be familiar with, and they may fear, you know, maybe I'm not completely understanding this trial. Um, it seems to have gone from a more frequentist analogy to a Bayesian analysis in certain trials. How do you make sense of this? How do you know if it's a well-done trial? How do you know that it's got validity? How do you know that, you know, the, the, this trial is going to have uh, endurance? What criteria do you use, and what should our clinicians be looking at? Yeah, these <laughs> these are great questions. Um, so a whole bunch of new things have all arrived at the same time. First of all, even though many people will have heard of Thomas Bayes, and even though Bayesian statistics predate traditional frequentist statistics by a couple of centuries, um, they have not been the regular fare for generating scientific evidence in most of them. Part of that is because uh, it's actually quite computationally intense to generate the so-called posterior probabilities. The, the, the fundamental difference between Bayesian and frequentist statistics is that uh, frequentist statistics takes the position of, I have a theory, the null hypothesis, or uh, the alternate hypothesis, and then I see data and I ask the question, are the data true? Are the data, can I believe the data are representative of the theory? So it's, given the theory, are the data true? And that's in part why we get so worried about the data, about the sample size, about stopping rules, or any interference with the experiment. Bayes is essentially the opposite. Bayes says, um, I take the data in front of me to be true, given the data, how do I now feel about my theory? Now, I would actually say that more closely mimics the way we all learn, even as babies, and to a certain extent, we're all amateur Bayesians. Um, we, we have a theory of the world, we're not sure about it, and then something happens. Uh, we totally believe our eyes about what happens, and then in our minds, we then say, given what just happened, how do I now update my theory of the world? So I want to dig into that a little bit deeper because you bring up a number of issues that are pretty interesting. For example, you said that with frequentist statistics, we go with the theory, whereas with Bayesian, we accept the data. If there's anything that we've learned is that data is not uh, objective. Um, sometimes you have a lot of bias in the data that you collect. If you adopt a Bayesian approach where you assume that the data is correct, are you not just uh, propagating bias or if you haven't accounted for it? Uh, okay, so that's quite a, that's quite a complicated statement. Um, so uh, the, the Bayesian design can still tolerate messiness, if that makes sense. So, for example, one of the features that is uh, 
sometimes used in some of these Bayesian designs is something called response-adaptive randomization, where even before the trial is over, if you're testing multiple arms, you don't necessarily need to have everyone have an equal opportunity of being randomized into each arm. You can move towards the arms that are performing best and underexpose the other arms. And early on, this was a design feature in iSpy2. And iSpy2, the outcome in breast cancer is obviously and ultimately long-term uh, cancer-free survival and survival. And so you have to wait a long time, but you get these intermediate uh, endpoints like pathologic clinical response, which may not perfectly correlate with the long-term uh, outcomes. In other words, it's messy. You get an intermediate readout that may not be an accurate portrayal of the long-term readout. And so the trial design can deliberately incorporate that we're going to make decisions on the basis of interim measures that may not in and of themselves be accurate. Uh, that analogy of carrying a tolerance for messiness um, can definitely be built into all of these designs. You, you mentioned the issue of endpoints, and if we've learned anything in critical care, if we choose the wrong endpoint that we end up uh, um, having outcomes that aren't uh, actually what we want. For example, if we target you know, oxygen levels or FI2 ratios rather than actual mortality, we can make the numbers look good, but the patient actually suffers. So how would you go about addressing endpoints and making sure that these studies actually address relevant uh, endpoints rather than endpoints that just help uh, promote the sale of a drug? So I would say a couple of things on that. So first of all, there's endpoints and there's sample size for those endpoints. So in frequentist trials, Sometimes you have a perfectly fine endpoint, but the wrong size study. And so it might be appropriate to look at mortality, but only to look at a mortality in an adequately large study so that it can, if there is a mortality, if you've appropriately calculated such, if you end up concluding, for example, that there's no superiority, you haven't left on the table uh, an important clinical difference that you were unable to find. Um, one important advantage of some of these Bayesian designs is once you've set the endpoint, you can then also set the probability around um, finding a difference in the endpoint, find the margin for that difference, and then you keep enrolling until you know that for sure. So you don't, you 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 definitely do an end run on the very common problem of having an endpoint sample size pairing that's incorrect. It seemed good at the start of the trial. It seems awful at the end. But then, separately, the endpoint itself. If you move away from something that's universally con considered to be important, like mortality, to something like organ support-free days, how do you feel about that? I would say organ support-free days is actually an intuitively valuable outcome because you are interested in the fate of patients who not only not only the mortality count but the more the morbidity if if you truly believe let, let's say you're doing an intervention where the mortality rate is something like 15% versus 16 or 17% so there's an important difference of a couple of percent in there but it's also true that three quarters of the patients are not incurring 
the mortality. They're all going to be assigned survival. If you think that your intervention could be disease modulating in an important way on the, the three quarters of those patients, it's important to have some measure of what's happening. And then in terms of the reporting, do you think we need to have a standard approach to reporting these uh, adaptive platform trials um, so that people uh, can take them in and make sense of them? Yes. <laughs> Are we quite there yet? We're a little early on it. But CONSORT, uh, Cochrane Collaboration, um, the JAMA Users Guides, all of those sort of independent uh, third-party bodies that have tried to help bring uh, rigor, the ICMJE reporting guidelines, th these various national and international bodies that try to steer the conduct and reporting of uh, randomized clinical trials, indeed of medical evidence writ broadly, um, definitely should be weighing in on do we need to update guidelines for reporting as well as conduct. And indeed, we were part of a consortium of regulators, patient groups, uh, trialists, etc., that wrote a piece in Nature Drug Discovery about a year or so ago, just before the pandemic, um, on addressing the many issues that are arising in the conduct of adaptive platform trials. Um, not to say that we have solutions for it, but to try to point the ways in which APTs are going to challenge uh, the usual way of doing things. And in order to promote their uh, transparent incorporation into the, if you like, the biomedical evidence generating universe, um, we would want um, so these sort of third party ombudsmen uh, to think about uh, standardized ways for reporting. So, um, Dr. Angus, you've been very generous with your time, and as we draw to the conclusion of this podcast, um, I just want to ask you, you know, what key messages do you want uh, the ATS community to have regarding uh, multi-center adaptive platform trials and the management of patients uh, with COVID-19? So I think uh, the big thing that I've noticed is we learn better inside these large-scale learning platforms, especially learning platforms that are then tied to healthcare delivery. So that as soon as you learn something, you immediately update guidelines. The problem is that's not the way we've done things in the past. First of all, research has been separate from clinical care. Only a tiny proportion of patients are enrolled in trials. And secondly, everyone gets to do a trial. Every individual investigator and university thinks it comes up with its protocol. And so this new paradigm, I think, is the efficient and correct way to do things, but gosh, has it come with growing pains. It's, it's been difficult to work out uh, why should people collaborate? Why should people throw in their lot into one large learning platform? How are, idea how are good ideas appropriately championed inside these organizations? How are they funded? How do they fund across international borders? I think the right way to learn involves using a system that we've never had before. <laughs> and so we're definitely going through um, a tricky period where 
we're trying to work out how can the entire clinical enterprise be better married to the entire research enterprise? How can the research enterprise uh, host everyone's individual ideas in a way that's egalitarian and efficient, rewarding for participation? And how can we close the gap between learning and care such that patients feel like it's a transparent process and that we're using designs that best serve both the patients in front of us and the patients that will come tomorrow. So you brought up an important point there, and I think it's useful to dwell on it a little bit more. Um, one of the benefits of the RCTs, as you mentioned, is that you know, individual investigators could do their own RCTs, albeit they most of the time did not get sufficient uh, sample size to answer the question. But this obviously, moving to adaptive platform trials, is there not a fear that you're going to have that one group or one um, uh, clinical enterprise is going to have a monopoly on research in um, certain parts of America or overseas? And what does that mean for future research? Is, is this not going to, will all funding not just go to those centers and other centers will be starved of research funding? I mean, it, it seems as though, as, as you correctly said, there's growing pains and it has the potential to for great uh, benefit, but also for a harm. Yes, it's it's totally the fear, <laughs> and it's an understandable fear, and it's crucial that we not be limited by the fear. Um, I would say that we're not first. Um, no one really thinks that individual universities can make meaningful contributions to large-scale advances in subatomic physics. Uh, so for decades now, we've had in these incredibly large international um, you know, particle accelerator installations uh, at which hundreds if not thousands of physicists all work together in large collaborative teams. And so they've totally had to embrace um, uh, what career success looks like for rising academics within these large team science initiatives. In the biomedical discovery uh, space, that uh, really began with the Human Genome Project, where they equally had to start to think about, well, here's a problem that no single university is going to do on its own, no single um, molecular geneticist is going to do on his or her own, and yet molecular geneticists starting out in their career still have to get tenure and get promoted and write papers and so on. And so they they totally, in order to be successful, they had to work out what does the shape of this endeavor look like so that people will want to participate, get recognition, make meaningful contribution, and yet we will break out of the mold of uh, essentially a cottage industry approach of lots of individual groups trying to tackle problems and no one having the resources or the capacity to actually solve the problem in front of us. So I think it's a huge issue for clinical research. And I totally think that it's making people uncomfortable for legitimate reasons. And it, it, it behooves us... Um, as a field, to try to think about lessons learned from other large-scale endeavors, um, including both the things that they've done that were successful and the things that they tried that, in retrospect, ended up um, not working that well. Yeah, our medical field will definitely have to adapt and be flexible and be willing to collaborate. 
thank you, Dr. Angus. So you've given us a lot to uh, think about and a lot to reflect on, and we'll be looking out for your future trials um, and the work uh, that's been done for COVID-19. Thank you. A big thank you to Dr. Angus, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.